0: um, Thank you. Um, So thank you all for coming to our final All Souls seminar for the year, the academic year. And um, I've just been reminded that this is the final All Souls seminar, but don't forget we've got the Roger Hood Lecture, the 31st of May. You do actually need to sign up so that we know how much
1: wine. (laughs) This is the crucial
0: thing, so so please uh, do sign up for the Roger Hood uh, Lecture, which is coming up on the 31st, but today we have uh, Dr. Coretta Phillips from the LSE and uh, Dr. Alka Palmer from our very own department here to discuss some findings from what I think is ongoing, life histories, is that right, it's still happening, life histories research, There's that too. Um, research that's funded by the British Academy um, that they're doing with a group of minority ethnic men in London. Coretta is Associate Professor in the Department of Social Policy at the LSE, and ALPA is Departmental Lecturer here. Both, as I'm sure you're all aware, have published widely in, area, in a range of areas to do with race, ethnicity, and criminal justice, with recent publications by Coretta about travellers and by ALPA on policing immigrants. they um, are going to talk for an hour or so, and then we'll have time for discussion. So,
2: for to you guys. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Thank you for the invitation going to come and talk about our research. Um, we should say, as everyone always does, I think, at these things, this is very much a work in progress, so we'd appreciate any uh, constructive comments um, and we'd be interested in your thoughts um, on what we're trying to do. So, the way we've organised the presentation today is I'm going gonna... oh, to. <laughs> You're going to break it's the not computer. your fault just the too much in the end. Sorry, that's my fault. Yeah, thank you. That is the end, isn't it? There is another little um, the... <laughs> actual... <laughs> <laughs> Do
0: you want the little theme
2: that <laughs> sorry, not very good starting? Yeah, yes.
1: <laughs> if you put this on, this
2: will move me back. That's sorry, put right. the okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. So um, the way we've organized the presentation is I'm going to say something about the research context for our study, um, and also then talk a bit more about the theoretical framework that we're loosely applying today. Um, Alta's going to talk about the methodology and discuss our sample, and then we're going to introduce two of our life history participants and say a bit about their stories, a kind of summary, potted history of their stories so far. Um, and then we're going to get into the research findings, which is essentially centering on the idea or the possibility of racialised worldviews and the way in which this may impact offending. And then hopefully we should have lots of time for questions. So um, what we're talking about today, as Mary uh, said in the introduction, was some small-scale qualitative life history research with um, mostly young men of diverse racial, ethnic, and religious backgrounds, all of minority ethnic origin, um, apart from a small sample who have some mixed history but primarily identified as white. And we do have one uh, young woman in our sample too. The kind of starting point for the research was trying to understand a bit more about how some minority ethnic groups um, are much more likely to get caught up in the criminal justice system than, than others. And we began to think a bit of, about uh, risk and uh, risk factors and protective factors, and so, in a sense, that situates our research within life course criminology, developmental criminology, although, of course, that's been primarily a quantitative uh, design, whereas what we're doing is very much qualitative. But, of course, this research is interested in looking at the pathways into offending um, and understanding what the risk factors might be that promote those um, offending trajectories, and then um, to look at turning points which uh, create pathways away from offending and towards uh, resistance uh, and resistance, probably. Um, and so this, it, in some senses, there's, there's actually been quite a lot of criticism of course of life course chronology, development, developmental chronology, particularly in the way in which it tends to focus on individual experience and behavioural change, within a, a kind of micro-level context and, and hasn't been able to accommodate um, structural inequalities in the way in which the structural context informs individual life experiences. But I think, having said that, most people, I think, would agree that Samson and Laub's work does um, a better job of, sorry, complete job... Um, Saxon loves research which is, I think, pretty highly regarded and recognised as really informative, not least because they also draw on a life history element to their research, um, in addition to the quantitative longitudinal designs. So, what their research suggests, in, in brief, is that childhood and adolescent delinquency Um, is much more likely where there's weak informal social control and they focus particularly on the family and the school's institutions of informal social control. And then in their work that looks at desistance, they talk about turning points um, and they look at life transitions, particularly employment and supportive romantic relationships and marriage is their focus very much. Um, in order to understand what can influence the way in which individuals move away from offending behaviour. Now, something and the work, interesting though it is, draws on the GLUICs data set, which um, was a, a large sample of white male delinquents, as they were referred to in the study, and also... Um, a control group of uh, non-delinquent young white men, although of course they followed them through. Um, And in their second book, they actually are following people right through to the age of 70 and beyond. So this is a really impressive, not least because they didn't have a great deal of attrition um, in, in their study. So more generally, there's been a criticism of this kind of research for not being able to say very much about race. Samson and Laos had an uh, entirely white sample. Many of the other data sets haven't had hugely racially diverse um, sub-samples. But where there has been some research in this area, there's generally been an acknowledgement that um, turning points are likely to occur at different times in different ways for minority ethnic young uh, sorry, at young, both younger and uh, older men. Most of the focus has been, of course, on men. And some of this literature refers to an economic maturity gap, which is essentially arguing that for minority ethnic young men and <coughs> women, if we can extrapolate um, on uh, gender grounds, they have less access to legitimate opportunities and therefore to successful... Um, pro-social turning points, both social and economic, and that's why we tend to see um, later desistance amongst minority ethnic groups. Now, the problem for us, in a sense, is that there's no real equivalent in the UK context. So we have the Edinburgh um, Study of Youth Transitions, which is a hugely impressive um, piece of work, but it's based in Edinburgh, and... Edinburgh actually has a majority white population. It was 96% at the time of the uh, census in 2001. Um, And even P.O. uh, Vittstrom's work also relies on a very, very small minority ethnic sample and can't really say very much about race. So what we wanted to do as our starting point today was to think about the idea of shared beginnings and that's the part of the title in the um, Samson and Lao, actually I think it's Lao and Samson book, the second one, um, which uh, talks about shared beginnings, divergent lives. So what we're interested in really is interrogating that notion and considering the validity uh, of the idea of shared beginnings when we take account of racial discrimination. And I think it's really important for us to be completely upfront at the outset and recognise that the young people that we spoke to shared many of the um, risk factors that would influence or propel people towards offending behaviour even if they weren't of minority ethnic origin. So we talked to people that had um, uh, considerable socioeconomic economic constraints, that experienced uh, residential mobility, Um, they often had disrupted family relationships and they had also experienced many of the kind of traumatic or adverse events which we know um, increase the likelihood that people will be vulnerable to both offending and victimisation. So we're not trying to suggest that there is something unique in that regard about our sample. But what we want to do is think about the way in which racism may compound those... uh, structural inequalities, those adverse um, situational <coughs> contexts in which minority ethnic men and women live. Now, most of you will be, not, will be aware that there's been lots of discussion, including by the director here, of um, what's recognised as a very unproductive debate focused on how we explain the over-representation of Um, some minority ethnic men uh, men and women in our prison populations, not just in England and Wales, but in many other jurisdictions as well. And, of course, these ideas at various points in time, fairly regular intervals, um, permeate the political consciousness and also the public consciousness, and that's very much what's happening at the moment in relation to knife crime. So we see periodically... Um, a focus on uh, of both media and policy attention on particular kinds of what are seen as typically black crimes. If we step back and think about the historical um, elements of the race and crime, crime debate, we can actually look back to African American scholar Du Bois um, for work in, in um, Philadelphia, looking at the experience of African Americans thinking about the role of elevated rates of offending as opposed to discrimination throughout the criminal justice process. And of course, traditionally, we focus very much on the police. But increasingly, we're recognising Alfred and um, Mary's work, recognising the importance of border agents as well. But we can also, interestingly, trace this work back to Lombroso um, in his look at uh, patterns of homicide in the US at the end of the 19th century. Now, critical criminologists have generally argued, and Pat Collin argues that critical criminologists, certainly in this country at least, are actually um, mainstream criminologists, tend to focus on the way in which um, elevated rates of offending amongst of minority ethnic um, uh, people result from adverse structural conditions, which serve as both a macro and a mezzo level factor for criminal activity. And you know these debates, of course, have been rehearsed in many other places as well. What we've become interested in is a burgeoning body of work, which is looking at the way in which experiences of racial discrimination at the micro level, um, so in the individual interactions, both within but also perhaps more importantly outside of the criminal justice system. Um, provides, or certainly some of this research suggests, quite, um, I think convincingly, that there's a direct link between the experience of racial discrimination and um, offending crime, delinquency, and also importantly, violent crime. So essentially, put simply, um, the argument is that experiences of racial discrimination um, increase the risk of criminal offending So um, just to use an example here um, of this scholarship, uh, Carrie Burt is one of the main scholars associated with um, this research. And what she argues, and she's talking about the US context, but she argues that racial minority young people essentially learn um, that they can legitimately justify their commission of crime because they've learned through their everyday lives that first of all, deferred ratification, does not ultimately lead to uh, rewards for people like them, people like us, I should say, I guess, Um, that the world is hostile, and also that social rules are not applied equally. And their argument is that these life lessons are stored as social schema, which essentially on the basis of meaningful past actions influences future behaviour. And they see these social schema mapping onto what they call a criminogenic knowledge structure. So I'll just move on to this slide, so the CKS in the, in the middle, um, in which uh, which essentially promotes impulsivity, immediate gratification. It promotes hostile views of relationships. And the argument here is that, in essence, if you're persistently exposed to antagonistic relation relationships. This leads to um, individuals imputing negative intentions, which requires coercive and aggressive behavior response. And then the last element, they argue, is this disengagement from conventional norms. The data set that they used was six waves of panel data from the American Family and Community Health Study um, of African-Americans living in Iowa and Georgia, and they've got a sample of just over 600 and they control for neighbourhood, racial composition, and also uh, economic level. And it's like many of these other uh, studies drew on data, um, self-report offending data, and also interviews with family members and uh, young people, of course, themselves. So in this study, which uh, coincidentally started in the same time period as the Edinburgh study, so in 1998, they started with young people who were aged 10 to 12, and the plan is to follow them up to 23 to 25. So they collected, the, as I said, the self-report data, but they also used what's uh, called the schedule of racist events. And this tested perceptions of racial discrimination. Uh, they used a range of questions, uh, asking people about their perceptions of unfair treatment by a whole range of different groups, from Teachers, neighbours, colleagues, co-workers, helping professionals, um, neighbours, and including friends. And they're asked about these experiences in the previous year and then also across their lifetime. The questionnaire also asks about being unfairly suspected of doing something wrong, um, of having intentions misunderstood, of being verbally abused and bullied, and also, interestingly, asks about emotional responses to those experiences where people said they had been victims in inverted commas. So it's interested in emotional uh, reactions and also practical actions taken in response to perceived racism. So in essence, what this kind of research is trying to do is identify, um, and they use the Likert scale for responses in relation to all of these questions, they're interested in measuring what they call our culturally specific stressors, um, which they argue are essentially personal attacks on the self. And unsurprisingly, the vast majority of the sample had experienced racial discrimination across the lifetime, many also in the previous year. And what their research shows is very complicated, um, as one of my colleagues calls in squiggles, which apologies to quantitative uh, researchers. Um, In a very complex way, they identify this, um, not only in association between experiences of uh, racial discrimination, um, uh, but actually, they found that these experiences were a predictor of involvement in offending and that these endured over time. Another body of work that we've been really interested in has been by Sean uh, Gavidon, an African American scholar and his colleague, uh, James Umida. And essentially they've made some very, very similar kinds of arguments. And in essence, what they argue is that African Americans operate within a with a racialized worldview in which they experience their present in light of their past. And their past is as humiliated recipients of racist treatment, and therefore they anticipate systemic racism in American society. And um, this it This body of work argues leads to weakened social ties to institutions of informal social control. So essentially, African the argument the simple argument is that African Americans show weaker bonds to white-dominated institutions. So their focus is primarily on schools and and uh, the labour market. And this they argue produces what they call externalizing behaviours, which can include offending. What's also interesting from our point of view, although not something that we can say very much about with our data set, is um, a, again a huge body of work in the US and a, a smaller body of work in the UK which identifies a link between experiences of discrimination and racism and adverse mental health outcomes. Um, and so this research also importantly recognises that the discrimination precedes the mental health, uh, negative mental health outcomes. So the argument here is that threats and assaults on individuals' cultural self-identities, it's argued can produce psychological symptoms, depression, anxiety, even trauma, and can have a detrimental effect on physical health. And I've just included here one, um, no I haven't, Sorry, didn't make it onto the slide. But um, in relation to adverse mental and physical health outcomes, there's one piece of research that was conducted that wasn't quantitative and that was undertaken in New York, 150 interviews with African-Americans of diverse social classes. And in this study, Fleming and colleagues report respondents feeling a defilement of the self, (coughs) to perceive themselves as over-scrutinised, overlooked, underappreciated, misunderstood, and disrespected. And what's important, I think, and those of us that experience racial discrimination will also recognise that that requires coping skills, and it requires also a considerable amount of emotional energy um, in processing those experiences, and often uh, often also a sense of being, to a degree, kind of hyper-vigilant to those kinds of experiences. What we don't know is whether um, reactions to experiencing racial discrimination vary. We might assume that they would vary by class, by ethnicity, and also over the life course. And we don't really have very much research on that. So all of this research after and I found really useful in thinking about some of these issues in the context of um, our London sample. Um, but what's I think important is that these kind, the, the d- inherent design of these kinds of studies, I think precludes more of a holistic sense of what being exposed to racism to potentially a traumatic degree across the life course can actually feel like, particularly when it's combined with experiences that the kind of usual uh, risk factors, structural inequalities, poverty and disadvantage. It's probably immediately obvious that our somewhat small scale research isn't necessarily the best way to really examine this in the UK context, but we think we have some data which is at least indicative of similar patterns operating here. So I'm going to hand over to Alp now to talk about the methodology and the sample.
1: Coretta. So, why are we interested in life histories? So, to begin with, um, Coretta's already talked about SAS and Labs research, and they really emphasise that qualitative data that's derived from systematic open ended questions or narrative life histories are actually quite crucial in uncovering the social processes that underlie stability and change in criminal and deviant behaviour. So we were really interested in trying to capture this through using the the life history approach. We were also really attracted by the fact that life histories tend to capture human agency, structure and culture. They're able to reveal the ways in which these processes intersect. Um, So we were hoping to get those from, from adopting this approach as well. Um, so as, they, as they, other people like Shad Maruna too have discussed that the life history method captures involvement in offending and disengaging from crime. So this idea of identity deconstruction um, was really important um, as a lens through which to understand long-term resistance. I like the way that Shad Maruna talks about how desistance inherently in and of itself is not a turning point but rather it's the process that it that it creates within a person in terms of their reflection. So the idea was that we were more likely to get at this through the life history approach Um, and more recently and perhaps controversially there's this dual role with life history research where people such as Lois Presser have argued that by engaging in life history um, interviews people not, not only are um, representing their past, but are also able to shape their future actions, which is really, which is really interesting for us, particularly because our sample um, is quite young, comparatively. Um, and also thinking about race. So although there's been um, recognition that individual lives are a significant part of the broader racial order in which they're cast, This has not produced the anticipated attention to the interface between identities, lives and social processes such as offending. So in fact, lives have been sidelined in efforts to understand the minutiae of social effects generated by racialising processes. So the efforts in which the individual has simply served as a screen onto which the social is projected, which Caroline Knowles talks about. So, so without life histories, we suggest that it's not clear how race operates as part of lived individual or social identities. So, the question is, what does race mean in the context of individual lives? By what mechanisms are lives raced? And our aim is, therefore, to insert the individual into the analysis of race. It seems also that in trying to understand the subtle operation of race as part of ide- as part of, ide- of identity and a part of social process, broader social processes, is not actually an easy task. And this is because there's a sense in which race has this, this embeddedness, which, which puts its, its existence and the effects of race almost beyond question. So that comes through with this notion that race is always at play, but at the same time this ubiquity which succeeds in putting race at the centre of social concerns renders it inaccessible to analysis sometimes. So the argument is, um, and we believe, that life histories therefore with their sustained approach are more likely to enable that analytical Shift from ubiquity to definite social, structural, and cultural practices which have a bearing on race and ethnicity. So um, so ultimately, through this, there can be the reinsertion of, of the individual into the analysis of race and an understanding of the cumulative effects of everyday racism, which capture the blatant, subtle, covert actions verbal messages or signals that are racist, which Philomena Esed and Joe Fegan have, have talked about. So our methodology then, so as Coretta already said, um, our overarching question is essentially why are some minority ethnic young men more likely to engage in criminal offending And disproportionately comprise the arrest and prison population than others, despite sharing this similar demographic and socioeconomic background. And in order to do this, we employed um, two to three interviews with each participant. We undertook oral history training, um, which was really fantastic, um, but, but enabled, it kind of taught us how to listen to to ask the right questions to try and ascertain what was going on in people's lives. Um, our access to, so, so we, we wanted to gain access to as broad a, a range of young people as possible and we did this through contacting local sports and community organisations across London, so the boroughs that we um, worked in the, the centers were based in places like Greenwich Hetney newham and Tower Hamlets um, and some others which aren't there um, and we also employed different methodologies so we used photo elicitation as well to try and capture some of the abstract um, more abstract ideas around identity and belonging and we also used vignettes so, What we did is we presented the young people with examples of a court sentencing procedure and different applications to minority ethnic groups. Similarly, a police example, I think, was was one of the ones that we used to really try and get the young people to think hypothetically that if you observed this going on in practice, would you perceive it to be discriminatory or not necessarily? Um, our process of engagement, um, as you might expect, generated a really strong sense of rapport with our participants. So I ended up helping a couple of them write CDs at the end of the interviews. Um, one, of, one of my participants had been driving a car without a licence for about seven years. Um, so we we got together and we applied to a charity to see if they would pay for him to take his driving test. And, I did, uh, shockingly, and he passed first time, of course. Um, (laughs) But but they're the ways in which you really got this continuity, this sense of relationship with with the young people. I think Jack, one of Coretta's participants, uh, was looking at um, applying to university and, and took advice from Coretta about that too. So this sense in which we we were able to go beyond um, simply extracting information and data for them. And one of the comments that we had at the end of um, our interviews for a number of people was that it really did enable this reflection for the participants at this crucial juncture in their lives. So one of my participants talked about how important, how useful it had been for him to reflect back on the decisions that he'd, that he'd actually made. So I think the, um, the overall strategy, the, the methodology we adopted, we'd say, was, was hugely successful. Um, and we recorded all of the um, interviews and had them transcribed professionally and um, have coded them on NVivo. And this is our sample. So, so far we've collected 21 life histories of young men and one woman, um, aged 16 to 25 in London. Um, as you can tell, the sample is extremely diverse ethnically, and we're still um, ongoing, as, as we said at the beginning, still ongoing with the data collection phase. Um, we, felt, we feel as though this sample is more realistic in terms of its capture of ethnic and religious diversity, Um, and Carassa and I actually pondered about how some of these participants might complete a census style category Um, for the question about ethnicity I think it would be quite difficult actually but it really reveals the fluidity and the movement of of ethnic groupings, actually Um, and these are some of our the the question themes that we adopted, so three interviews, Um, the first one looked at babyhood um, and early life, so we tried to adopt a broadly chronological um, schema, Um, example questions for interview one was what is your earliest memory, do you have a concept of God or a higher power, some really interesting responses to that one. Um, And interview two, we moved on to school and teenage years. um, We asked about education and then start asking about crime and turning points in that interview. And the third interview was about um, more broader abstract themes. And this is where we use the photo elicitation techniques. So there are a couple of examples of photographs being used to get the participants to talk about what they thought about these images, whether they recognised them, whether they knew the individuals in them and what what it represented to them, whether they connected with them at all in any sense. And within this interview, we then ended up asking them whether they felt part of British society. society. Um, We asked them about regrets and also Allowed them the opportunity to put in things that we had not actually covered in our questions. So we asked them whether, we, whether they'd left anything out of their life story. And we also used this grid to capture some of the life events, which was useful. So I want to move on now to um, a couple of examples of the young people that we talked to. So um, I interviewed Mike and so i talk about him. So Mike was 25 years old, black African, um, white French, Muslim. He was born in, um, in East London, had three sisters um, and he'd had quite a troubled, traumatic um, life. His parents separated um, he his father was then on the scene, and then he he found that in particular really really difficult, um, and that um, that coincided with him being on the basketball team at school, but then was kicked off, um, which really affected him quite badly. And it was at this point that he he began engaging in petty offending. He moved on to selling Class B drugs, um, committed robbery regularly using. Real A real gun, and also um, pretended to have a gun at times, um, used knives, was physically attacked and victimised himself, so we really saw that overlap between offending and victimisation quite often um, through all our participants, but it was really marked with um, Mike. Um, and then at 17 he became a father, and he discussed how he started selling Class A drugs to make money for his daughter. Mike, um, by the time we'd spoken, had been in prison four times. Um, And most recently, he was placed in a detention center, um, had been deported to Paris, um, and appealed his case, which he won, but I'll go on to talk about that in a moment, um, about why that was particularly poignant in his life story. Um, and now Mike was working at the gym um, at, at, a, at an organisation called Fight for Peace which is a really interesting organisation it's, um, it's based in Brazil East London and Jamaica and they use the theory of change to try and instil sports to try and change um, and divert people from offending behaviour um, and since, since being in Rochester prison um, Mike Told me that he follows Islam privately and I'll move on to Coretta who is going to talk to you
2: about H. So, um, thank you, H was uh, 22 years old when I interviewed him last summer. Um, His mum was from the Gambia and his dad was Sierra Leonean but his dad was not part of his life growing up or indeed as, as an adult. He was a devout Muslim, um, and at the age of six, he'd been sent by his mum to a religious school in Senegal, which he found deeply traumatic. He talked about in the early days, just crying all day um, for his mum. And he also experienced what he called abuse, beatings, and torture at his time um, in this religious school. And he only came back to London when he was uh, 15, because he had malaria and it was recognized that he would have better um, uh, sort of health outcome if he moved back to the UK. So he came back to London when he was 15. Unsurprisingly, he had quite a difficult relationship with his mother, who he described as old school. Um, She was very strict. Um, And although he'd enrolled in college and learned English, when he first came back he couldn't speak English. Um, he hadn't been able to complete college uh, for financial reasons. He said that he wasn't able in his last year to put money on his Oyster card to get to college um, and therefore he dropped out. And he talked quite wistfully about how if that hadn't happened he would have been in his second or third year at university. So there was this breakdown of his relationship with his mother and he was for a while uh, sofa hopping and then he moved into a hostel. And the second interview that I did with him was actually um, in a shared house but that, that was um, essentially a kind of small hostel, um, accommodation through an organization. So he was in a single room. And uh, H had been involved in a variety of crime, probably at the you know, at the less serious end. And although we um, often we hear This argument um, that people are very rarely involved in offending for um, urgent subsistence needs, that seemed to be what H talked about. He described being literally hungry, starving, unable to provide any food for himself, particularly when he wasn't living at home with his mum and his sisters, and he'd been involved in um, theft from his employer. First of all, he'd been employed at Wimbledon, and somebody told him how you could nick money out of the till. So that lasted about four days before he got caught, and that ended in a caution. Um, and then he moved on to work um, in one of the catering outlets at Wembley Stadium, where he also took money out of the till. Um, and that, that job lasted for about a year, and then he, um, he wasn't caught for that offending, um, but he changed jobs. And he'd also been involved, he'd been arrested for a violent assault after he'd been uh, robbed by an acquaintance that had ended in him attacking uh, the perpetrator. That was dealt with by the police that then was NFA'd. And he'd also been involved for about a year in drug dealing, and this was quite a tricky area for him as a devout Muslim, talking about the importance of morality and this time and this well, I'll say a bit more about this in a moment but this was a difficult time when he felt he got sucked into offending and dealing but again he emphasised just the complete absence of money and this wasn't I think both of us have interviewed lots of people that have talked about wanting for example designer items and to be able to kind of exhibit a sort of materialist consumerism this really wasn't, didn't appear to be Experience of age. He didn't present in that kind of way. He talked about literally having no money, and he'd also been arrested for smoking weed. And I'll say a bit more about his employment difficulties in a moment. But one of the things that was really interesting about him, he—it um, was one of those interviews that you do where you imagine that you might not, you might not be able to kind of gain a rapport with somebody. So he was very—he um, wasn't very forthcoming at the start of the interview. And I hadn't really sort of understood what was going on until he started talking about his experiences in Senegal and the the, violence, the violent abuse he'd experienced, and he started to cry, and he was... Um, he sighed a lot throughout the interviews, and although I, of course, asked him whether he wanted to just stop the interview, he wanted to carry on, and he saw that as, in a way, although it was bringing the trauma back quite cathartic, uh, he recognised that that just in a hugely traumatic Part of his life, and he tried to see that as a as a way of recognising his own inner strength. And he talked really positively about trying to uh, move on with his life. He wanted to be successful, but he kind of demonstrated, somewhat ironically, a kind of pro- a very kind of Protestant work ethic, and was very keen to be employed. So we want to come on to talk about what some of our data showed in relation to this idea of a sort of racialised worldview, and this came out very clearly in H's interview where he talked, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, about the way in which stereotyping in, in um, East London influenced him and people like him. So, um, Sorry, I've noticed an error there. That should be Trust Me fam," which he used that word all the way through in the interviews. He talks about being, uh, working in construction as a labourer and being asked, what are you doing here? He's, I said, I'm working. They said, but you black boys don't work. Uh, you're always outside, just like on the streets. He said, fine, but that's not me. I'm working. And then at another point in the interview, he talked about what it was like to be um, a black boy in London, growing up in this country, although of course he hadn't grown up in this country, but he recognised in his experiences from 15 onwards that things are tight for you, you can't get a job, uh, you can't get a job, people are giving you stereotypes because of the way you look or because of your hair or the way you dress or the way you talk. You know what I'm saying. It's like you can't be normal with normal people because they don't see you as normal. And I think that sense of being other, which, you know, at one level is really very obvious, but actually was just really powerful um, in many of these interviews and certainly was in H's interview, this sense of just not being seen as a normal young man trying to succeed. He also talked about the system and he gave one example which I think nicely shows the overlap between his kind of precarious employment. So this wasn't just about race. So he said sometimes the system knocks you off as well. So he talked about the job he'd applied for, Um, he went there on a Friday, he did one day's work, he got £64 for it, then the next week he worked Monday to Thursday and they gave him double what he'd earned for one day for working four days and he got into a kind of altercation with the um, administrator who was managing the wages. Um, and, but actually that was ongoing and while, he was, uh, while we were talking, he had to make a phone call to try and ensure that he was gonna be able to access the money um, so that he wouldn't get chucked out of the, the hostel-run accommodation that he was living in. So having had this experience, of essentially being exploited perhaps because of his race, but certainly because of his vulnerable position in this kind of um, secondary labour market, he recognised that he needed to organise getting housing benefit and he also needed to to immediately look for another job. He'd assumed he had a longer term position, but he'd only really been asked to work for a week. So he'd got up early to go to uh, meet somebody at the employment centre and actually also an organisation that had been helping him in employment and supporting him. Um, And he was running a bit late, so he ended up at the Olympic Park in Stratford, and he realised that a a part of the park had been cordoned off, and his Google Maps was showing that he needed to go through the park that this area had been cordoned off. So he went up to the security staff and asked whether they would let him go through this area that had been cordoned off. And he said to them, I've got a job interview, can you just help me go through? You can even search me, I have nothing, I just need to go through because I'm running late. And he was aware that, that you know, it was time-limited, the his opportunity to see this woman that would be helping him to get a job. And then he ran, when they, when the security staff said that they weren't going to let him in, um, let him go through this area, he went to another part of the park and they saw him jump over a bridge and he was starting to walk away and then a number of security guards ran. They got the security manager um, uh, to come and the security manager asked him his name and then at the same time was uh, ringing the police. So the way in which H talked about this, the way in which he understood this situation was that he'd asked nicely. It seemed reasonable to be able to get to this place. And what was really significant it was his kind of exasperation in that he couldn't communicate just how important this was. There was the backstory of um, you know, losing the job, being underpaid, needing to get to see this woman, to get another job, hopefully some casual work, and then just being thwarted by these security guards. And he talked about trying to be humble and also this is my life. That's the thing that he was underlining. This is what life is like for people like me. And he said, i try and be humble, but things like that, I can't take it. You're trying to make me just like the stereotypes you're giving me like. You're taking my name. You're giving it to the police when it's not needed. It doesn't matter how much you talk, how much you fight. It doesn't matter what you do. They always win. And just so it doesn't look like we've cherry-picked um, just a, a really small part of our, admittedly small sample... Um, I've just included here another quote by Tyrone, um, a young man that I interviewed as well, uh, who talked about his experiences struggling in, again, not actually precarious employment, but low-wage employment. He had a permanent position working as a lift engineer, and he talked about training up a colleague who'd started after him, who had then been promoted before him. Now, of course, in any of this, we want to un- underline again, we're talking about perceptions of discrimination, and that's the way in which this is interpreted. And I think, certainly i found this in my research before looking, talking to young people in prison, is that actually people don't automatically assume that they've been victims of racism, of discrimination. They look first for other explanations, and they're also generally speaking, kind of reluctant to assume racism. So these weren't people that were um, trying to explain away their experiences. They were talking about the likelihood that these were actions, experiences, events in their lives were motivated by discrimination. And Tyrone was just talking about this ridiculous situation where he was much more skilled, but he'd been promoted over, he'd been, uh, the the person who was less skilled had been uh, promoted over him. In relation to experiences of policing, this quote will be very familiar to everybody here, I'm sure you're aware of lots of research which talks about the way in which people's lives are often mired in this ever-present threat of police interrogation. In this case, H is talking about an incident when his sister just had a baby and she sent him out to get a paintbrush and he'd been stopped by um, what he called undercover plainclothes officers who searched him, put their hands in his trousers. Um, they said that it looked like he was selling drugs and he'd just been out and borrowed his nephew's bike to get to the shops quickly. In another incident, Jack, who'd had um, two periods in uh, custody, for violent offences, talked about an experience that he'd had 10 years ago, um, and he said, and, and I think we're probably, um, it, you know, again, it, it seems very obvious, but I think it's quite important to align with this idea of a racialised worldview, is that the young people we spoke to expected discrimination, and they expected it certainly from the police. They saw the police largely as um, not legitimate, so he said at the time, I just knew police were like that, that's it, it was just like, so he'd gone on a train down to Essex with a friend, with his friends who were Vietnamese and Chinese, and he said, you know, thinking about the way in which the police saw this, it's a white man and a black guy, they're looking at his son, this white um, man had his son with him, um, and so the police are going to assume that we're the ones who attacked him, and in a sense they did, but that's not the case, he said. Even though he admitted to calling me a nigger, which even 10 years ago would have constituted a, a racist incident, possibly a racially motivated crime. Um, he admitted to putting his hands on me first. I was the one that was still arrested. The white man wasn't arrested. Um, it doesn't make sense why he arrested me. The man had admitted to put his, putting his hands on me. So, And then he goes on to talk about what happened. He get, they get off the train, and he hears the white guy saying something... Um, Andy, here's the word nigger, so he admits, you know, in his own account, I'm 15, I'm not smart, I'm not smart, so don't expect me to walk away, don't even run that one by me, I'm small, I'm dumb, uh, let's put that to one side, I've gone over there and I've asked this man um, why he said what he said, and the guy said to him, if you're going to do something, do something, and um, Jack said, no, if you're going to do something, do something, and so the guy grabbed him by the throat, and at that point, he and his friends intervened. And this one was interesting because Tyrone was um, one of our respondents who was often seemed reluctant to talk about racial discrimination. Um, and it was interesting that the young woman that we interviewed, who didn't know at the time, um, was actually Tyrone's partner. And she talked about things that they'd experienced um, that he didn't talk about in his interview. But he talked about a time when he was younger his dad had been arrested. And I asked him about, you know, had his dad been involved in crime? He said as far as he knew he hadn't throughout his life. He hadn't, you know, he wasn't an offender. Um, And the police had turned up to the house and Tyrone had said, excited by the car with the lights on and the speeding, had said to the police officers, um, can I go with it, can I go in the police car and they said, very, and, you know, this was I think very poignant in the interview he said oh well, you will one day and he talked about his dad he didn't understand, he was thinking that that was a positive thing that he was able to ride in a police car but of course later he realised that his dad had been struggling, had, had to bite his lip during that uh, that um, that instance So again, it's about trying to recognise, I think, um, the pervasiveness of these kinds of experiences for these young men. And then the final one, Joseph was um, somebody that we interviewed who hadn't been involved in crime. Um, He'd had one incident where he'd been suspected of being involved in stealing phones from a mobile phone shop in uh, Westfields in Stratford. And interestingly, he talked about how he'd been treated really kindly by the security office. It had been really embarrassing being sort of walked through uh, Westfields, but he'd said that he'd been treated very kindly, and then there was this kind of sort of uh, embarrassment when the security officer saw the Bible in Joseph's bag and actually recognised that he was um, a very devout Christian. But what he did talk about, again, was this sense in which... um, Black young people are much more vulnerable to exclusion and discrimination. And there, there is this inequality in experience in these white-dominated institutions. He talked about a friend who hadn't been able to continue and go into sixth school. Um, he hadn't really done anything wrong, but he got kicked out. And like many of the others, I'm not saying it's racism, but most people that are doing bad stuff in school were white, that they were kicking out black people for things that appeared to be much less major in terms of their seriousness Okay, Apple's going to finish off talking about uh, Mike, I'm not sure how long we've got Ooh. Not very long Not very long <laughs> Five
1: minutes <Too> quickly, yeah. <laughs> I'll try um, Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Mike, um, who I introduced to you earlier So, just to give you a second to read um, what what Mike is saying to me in this in this first interview. So as you can probably tell, um, Mike's actually struggling to tell me about his ethnic background and his nationality. So I I asked him how important is the country that you your family came from originally to the sense of who you are. And as this um, interaction goes on, Mike gets quite agitated. He's deflective um, and he's almost aggressive. You know, so he says, "Oh, I'm just." You know, I knew I was French from when I was young, I'm I'm just from there, and then he progresses to saying, just because I'm from France, like I'm not king, which kind of stood out to me, um, and he, he kept emphasising that it's not important, it's not important where I'm from. And this was in the first interview, so it was very much before he told me that he'd been deported. Um, so it's really clear. I suppose, and and in contrast to the examples that Coretta just talked about, um, I think this is a more subtle way in which Mike's racialised worldview is actually coming out. So it's through nationality that Mike is really feeling um, um, racialised. Another example as well with Mike. Um, So I'm, I'm asking him whether he thinks there's much racial prejudice nowadays, and he emphatically says, of course there is. Um, and he, he really emphasises how he, he feels it both in, in the subtle ways in which it's, it's felt. So it's not necessarily said, but felt. So at the bottom of the slide he's saying, because people are racial, they won't say it to you, but they have racial flaws. So, and that's the worst. So he found that particularly painful, actually, the way in which he felt racism, even when it wasn't... Explicit. Um, another example of Mike's racialised worldview um, came out in his discussions of the criminal justice system. So I think this was the vignette um, piece where I asked him whether the poli- whether he felt that the police would treat him or other races better. And he says, oh, they're treating me worse. Um, And he he again draws on the idea that it would be because of stereotypes automatically. And then immediately he refers to a case that happened in his local area where he says that there was a Muslim boy who was going to the mosque and he was arrested because he was wearing too many layers. Um, And research by Univer and Gabadon has also shown us how deleterious consequences, um, how problematic those consequences of racial discrimination are, and they can really manifest themselves even when that's done through vicarious experience. So often, the young people refer to their friends being stopped in search, and then actually feeling, feeling the pain and, and problems of that. Um, the photograph on the slide is from a photo elicitation piece so I asked Mike about his thoughts on it and obviously he's saying that's really bad and he's restrained and again links it to his own experiences. And this, this photograph really worked quite well because in contrast I had a young white participant who, who looked at that photograph and said to me, yeah, you know, look how many people are checking that man, he's really badly hurt. Um, you know the contrast in the way in which these situations are perceived was, was really telling. I mean, I was quite shocked, but he he did actually really believe that that the police were just checking this man. In contrast, obviously, to to Mike's perspective. Um, again, to underscore what what Mike's thoughts were about the police, um, he he had really negative. Um, views of the police, he felt as though they, they abused their power, um, and he makes a clear distinction between how he sees the law in principle, but also compared to how it's actually applied. Um, and a number of my interviews were actually conducted very soon after the Rashan Charles case um, in, in London. Some of the young people said that they knew him. Um, Rashan Charles, for those of you who don't know, died at the hands of the police, um, Last, I think it's July, maybe maybe June, but July. Um, so again, this, this really strong sense in which um, he, he sees the police as, as loving to use their power, that's the thing they love to do. Um, and another example of Mike's racialised worldview, so he, he was really always keen to go beyond the veneer in describing things, so he showed young people these pictures, these photographs, and this is the, the case of Lee Rigby, um, and he really explained the need to go beyond the surface to understand the case, to explore the motivations of the perpetrators, and he firmly locates the explanation within a racial framework. So racial, how it's understood, racial, why it's done, was his, was his key, um, key phrase. Um, and similarly with the, with the racist graffiti uh, photograph, he says he expects it. He thinks that that's the normal mode of transaction between him and white groups in the area where he lives. Um, and again, he refers back to the police. He says that needs to go or change it to, to police. Um, again, really showing his disdain. Um, and, and so what, we, what we're trying to do is, is to really show how interpersonal racial discrimination along with structural racism is antagonistic, stressful, cumulative in its impact and on the potential to increase the risk of offending. So with this quote um, we see for H, he feels that he has little, little choice and he's stuck. He's fixed by the stereotypes attributed to him. By the system, and he sees this as, as applying to, to black people more broadly. Again, coming back to Mike, um, this was a discussion that he that came up when we were talking about turning points in life, and it's at this point he reveals to me about his experience in detention. So he said it was so traumatising tra- that it caused anger problems and drew him into drug dealing drugs again. So the experience of detention hurt him and made him smash everything up. So he says it not only just made him think about smashing things up, but actually made him made him physically want to do that. And going back to Univer, Cullen and Barnes, they also suggest how racial discrimination fractures the ability of African Americans to bond with historically white-dominated institutions. And what happens is they come to perceive these institutions as persistently discriminating against them. Also, there's other research, but again, based in the US, which shows empirically that um, exposure to racial discrimination is is really a strong risk factor of more violence. Um, So they found in a sample of African-Americans aged 6 to 32 that respondents who reported ever having been a victim of at least one of six types of racial discrimination were more likely to then have an official record for violence. And I'll come on to conclude and um, just a few points here. So although we've, we've really, we really feel that life histories have, have been successful, they've been a great way in which to understand these, these intricate processes, we also reflect on the fact that there are only a point of access to the connections between offending race and structural factors and cultural identities. So the lives that people talk and the lives they walk and live are not the same thing. Um, And much of life, of course we appreciate, actually occurs beyond the researchers' gaze. So in some sense we did get this sense that the core of life is, is at times unreachable, that lives actually do resist telling. There were times at which we really had to drag out the information. Despite our best efforts to try and introduce chronology, we'd find that people dart from present to past and vice versa. But I think it's important to to see the merits and limitations of the approach. And I think, so, our argument is that whilst whilst we can't categorically provide a causal link between discrimination, racism, and offending, that we have really strong um, indications of it in our data. Um, So the findings, along with BERT and... um, really underline the, the functional premise, we think, of considering the influence of race and racism from a, from a micro-sociological perspective. And lastly, to, to conclude, um, we wonder whether there's crime reduction potential from a broad anti-racist movement. We think it's really telling that much of the US research on the effects of racial discrimination on offending is actually funded under the auspices of the public health, uh, under public health paradigms. So lots of the research is funded by mental health um, funders, and this this seems yet to be fully embraced. We think in British criminology. but it's really interesting that that's where this research linking racial discrimination and um, offending lies in the US. I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you.